And so we are working our way through the Psalms, studying them. There are 150 of them. And so we won't be, it won't be finished just in a few weeks. And we are now in Psalm 16. And we will read that Psalm together. It is not a very long Psalm, 11 verses. And there is a copy of the Bible there in your pew if you do not have your own with you. So Psalms, the book of Psalms, right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 16. We'll be examining the first six verses uh, this evening. It's our intention, but we'll read the whole Psalm. Psalm 16, Miktam of David. We'll find out what Miktam means in a minute. I'm reading from verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God, Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins, that is my kidneys, also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures for evermore. Amen. So as I mentioned, we are examining verses 1 to 6 uh, this evening. Um, miktam, then, what is this word miktam that we see in the title? As I mentioned before, the titles of the Psalms at least as we have them here. I'm not talking about some Bible publishers will add a little description and a short summary of what the psalm is about. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about these little words, these phrases, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, and now we have Michtam of, of David. What, what is that? Now, for some translators, it's not a very clear word, and it is a bit of an obscure Hebrew word, but the translators of the authorized version have determined um, that it means golden. It means golden. And if you look into the... I'm not expecting you to do so, but if you look into the, to the Hebrew, that certainly makes sense. Not gold, but of gold. It is made of gold. It is something that is golden. And that's literally what that word michtam uh, means. It is of gold, golden. And there are a few places in the Scriptures that we find a similar word... Not quite the same, but a similar word. 
In Proverbs 25 and verse 12, we have this, as an earring of gold, that's not the same word, and an ornament of fine gold, it's that word, fine gold, that we have in the word miktam, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. And we also have the phrase pure gold, uh, or it's translated as pure gold, uh, we have in Job 28, verses 19 to 20. So we're diving into a complex passage, so just listen to what we're having. The topaz, that is a gemstone of Ethiopia, shall not equal it. Neither shall it be va- valued with pure gold. That's the word that we have as miktam. Whence then cometh wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? And so there's those two verses that we've looked at there don't not only give us uh, a, a place where a, a similar uh, root, a similar word is used, essentially the same word as we have as miktam, but see how it is coupled with wisdom because it's compared with wisdom. Saying wisdom is like pure gold. It's something precious. But true wisdom is also pure wisdom. It is fine wisdom, you know, foolishness that pretends to be wisdom and is not wisdom as fine gold. It's fool's gold, if we want to make that comparison. But in those two verses that I've just uh, brought to your attention from Job and from Proverbs, we see that we have those links of true wisdom, true divine wisdom we might say, is pure gold, fine gold, the best gold, 22 carat wisdom, we might say. And surely we can say that, well, this psalm then, having this, this title, uh, which is not a common title in the psalms at all, there are only uh, I think five or six at the most that you would use that expression as a miktam uh, of David. But we can understand that therefore, therefore is a, a golden psalm. A golden psalm uh, of David. Godly wisdom worth its weight in gold. And, and there is so much in there that we're unable to examine these 11 verses in one evening. So I trust that we will split our study into only two parts. But with the Lord's help this evening, let's examine... The Golden Psalm, part one. The Golden Psalm, part one. And we open up with verses one and the beginning of verse two with the prayer of faith. There's a prayer of faith uh, when we look at these verses. And at the beginning of that prayer of faith, there is a plea, a pleading to God for preservation. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, keep me. Hold me up, stop me sliding. Lord, protect me, deliver me, we might say. See, once again, that the believer is under attack. It's not the way to have a, by any means, certainly not to have a victim mentality as believers, not at all, but we understand that the world has never loved the Bible believer. And that should not, again, turn us inward, turn us into one group against the other group because we are in the world even though we're not of the world. Those things we must be very careful of to, to be some sort of little Klein elitist group because we in and of ourselves are, are nothing. There is, who has made the difference? We have not made the difference. By God's grace, he has made a difference. Um, but we are not to boast in ourselves. But the Christian is under attack. Christians, everyone is under attack at various times in their lives from various people. People are not nice. They're not nice at school. 
They're not nice in the, in the kindergarten. They're not nice when you get older. People can be mean. People are mean. People can also be very pleasant and very helpful and nice. But there are plenty of people who uh, can attack us, they can gossip about us, can slander us, can physically attack us. And so the theme that we see in here is a very real theme. And we've seen this again and again, just in these 16 Psalms that we've been looking at. The, the, the reality and the truth that the people don't always like us, whoever we are. And that our best friends can stab us in the, uh, in the back. Those that we love can desert us. These are truths and, and they, are, they are difficult to deal with. On a more spiritual level, we know that the Christian is under attack. Under attack from the, well, we know from the scriptures, the three great enemies, actually the enemies of mankind, but we understand it uh, as Christians more clearly because we read the Bible and it says it, that we have three enemies, the flesh, our own flesh, the fallen flesh, the flesh that wants to lie, the flesh that wants to deceive, the flesh that wants to deceive our, ourselves, the world, the world around us, and we've just mentioned that, and the devil, the devil who is, is there, who is there to destroy mankind and to destroy all those made in the image of God, and especially those who are being remade in the image of God. So we're not going to deny the fact that the devil is aiming his fiery darts at the Christian. You might notice that at times. There are many things that are against you. Many things. And, it's, and again, as I said, it's not just Christians that have many things against us. We do. The difference is, is the Lord makes it very clear in his word that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. But all things do not work together for them that hate the Lord. Albeit we go through similar tests and trials. So the call goes out, the call is going out to the Lord in prayer. Preserve me, O God. And although we may be blessed with many good friends and good family, and maybe complete strangers that will come and help, and yet our first cry should be like the psalmist here is to the Lord himself. For it is he that provides us with and has provided us with family, friends and the odd Samaritan here and there. And so we, we pray that earnest prayer preserve me. Now he is, he is calling out to the Lord for preservation and yet we do not get much detail in this psalm. Other psalms that we've already looked at, that whether he calls out on the Lord for, for protection and, and for help, he comes out with details of, of, of people are, are, are against him, that, that literally after his life and his blood and his soul. But we're not getting those details now. We're getting more of the, the intimacy of the prayer between the believer and his God and Savior. Preserve me. Oh God, let our first cry be made unto the Lord. A plea for preservation also includes a confession of faith. Preserve me, O oh God, for in thee do I put my trust. O oh my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. So where is this confession of faith? Well, he's putting God's 
not name, but title, God, on his lips. Oh God. One might even say he's saying, my God. Preserve me, my God. But it's not what it literally says. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, God. Thou art my God. And there's a declaration there that there is a God and that he is your God and that you are his creature. It's setting out a, a very basic existential, if I might use a big word, existential claim and relationship. The word that I come from, who am I? I am created. I, am, I, am, I have been fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord. He made me uh, at conception, made, and then, and then uh, most wisely and, and, and fearfully wrought and knitted together in the womb of my mother. Oh God, very basic, the basic element of the, tr- of the truth, that there is a God, that he's my God, that he's made me, that he owns me, and he cares for me. And if I don't make peace with him, he will judge me. But he has also provided a way of salvation, and that is his son. Did they know the name Jesus in the Old Testament? No, but they knew the promises of God. They put their faith in the promises of God. In the, in the hints and, and the unveilings of the Savior yet to come. Even immediately at the fall, we have the Lord's first promise that there would be a Savior. There would be someone that would come and crush the power of the serpent. And then that continued. And then the believing in the promise may not understand the promise, but I believe it. As a childlike trust, a childlike faith, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. New Testament language would be, O God, I believe in thee. I put my trust, I, I, I put my trust now as I'm standing here on this podium that the wood is strong enough and it won't break through and I won't hurt myself as I fall into the basement. I put my trust in the car that as I drive it that the brakes will work. We put our trust in, in all sorts of things every day. So it is something that, the, that mankind has in himself and yet when it comes to trusting in God that is by nature absent. Yes, there are many faiths and many people can have ideas uh, and religious ideas and religious philosophies, but to have that personal faith in the Lord, we understand from the Scriptures, well, it's missing. But God gives it. It's His gift. Because, as I said, we will put our trust in all sorts of things. We'll put our trust in politicians again and again and again, even though they quite often disprove our trust. They're not as trustworthy as they would make themselves out to be. So we put our trust in men and women. We put our trust in people. We put our trust in ideas. And, And so often we are proven wrong. But we don't by nature put our trust in God, put our trust in his way of salvation, or even put our trust in the truth that he says that there is a problem, and that problem is called sin. And there's another problem. I'm a holy God, and I'm wrathful over sin. 
and I will judge every sin, every sin of the soul, of the will, of the thoughts, uh, of the mind, of the, of the tongue and the mouth, of the deeds of the hand, everything, because I know everything and I see everything and I am so righteous, I must judge everything. So there's no looking through the fingers, there's no hiding that. And yet the Lord, from that very first promise in Genesis 3, all the way to the end of the Scriptures, again giving that promise, there's a, there's a, the, the, there is a promise coming, there's a destroyer of sin, there's a destroyer of, the, of Satan, that there is a Redeemer. And, and more and more we have through the Scriptures a revealing of who this Redeemer is until we have the opening of the New Testament and we, hear, we see that God becomes man. And then He lived that life that we do not live, cannot live, even as Christians. We do not live it. And yet he calls on, upon everyone to put their trust in the Lord. There's a, a wonderful, simple promise that we have in the Scriptures. We read of it in the Old Testament. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There was no, there's, there's no emphasis there on what you've done or what you must do or what you need to earn because we cannot earn it. And then that promise is repeated by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he quotes it again. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in the book of Romans we have uh, the Apostle Paul, the great theologian of the New Testament, uh, speaking on many matters, but then he speaks upon true faith. And again quotes the prophet Joel, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, is it, so we're not saved by works? No. We're not saved by charitable gifts? No. We're not saved by anything in us? No. We're saved by trusting in the Lord, calling upon Him and trusting in Him. And that's what we see here. Preserve me, O God. We could say that this is a sinner's prayer. Coming to God for the first time, well it isn't, it's, it's, it's David, a believer coming, but we can see that here. Preserve me, O God, save, save me from myself, save me from my sin. I have been so foolish and so arrogant and so blinded, and yet, Lord, there's something that I understand of my need of Thee. Preserve me, O God, for in Thee do I put my trust. And that's what God demands, that we... No longer keep on calling him a liar because the truth is in him. It's not, just that, it's not just that God is offended that we call him a liar. It's just that if we think that he's a liar, we will not trust him and therefore will not trust the way of salvation. The Lord says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, obey him, follow him. We say, well, I, I, I don't believe that. That, 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 that. Some, for some people, that, they would say, that's too easy. That's too easy. Is that all I have to do? Well, it's not all you have to do. It's, it's what you must do. You must believe. And in believing, we repent. We're turning away from our self-righteousness. We're turning away from that we're okay. We can manage on our own. We're turning away from lies. We're turning away from sinning against the God who created us and feeds us and cares for us, although we deserve none of it. And then, we and then we turn to him with our sin. Repenting of that sin and believing on him to deal with that sin. 
And he has given that way. He has given that way of salvation, which is his own son. That the one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that the Father would send his Son to become in the likeness of sinful man and to live that perfect life that we do not live and cannot live, as I mentioned before I went off on that tangent, and then sacrifice that life. The whole sacrificial system that we have in the Old Testament, in the books of Moses, all of those that we see, and even prior to that, the sacrifices for sin, the sacrifices for peace with God, all pointing to one sacrifice, of course. And therefore, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. It says something there that you take, lay hold of God. The appropriation of God. And then declaring that you do trust the Lord. That you do trust the Lord. They have something of the allegiance and allegiance to God. And, O oh, my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My soul, thou hast said unto the Lord. So there's a history of prayer here. But also in the calling out to God God, save me. Why? Why? Well, I trust in thee. Thou art my Lord. Thou art my Jehovah, as it says in the Hebrew. Thou art, sorry, no, so he said, unto Jehovah, thou art my Lord, thou art my master. It's the word Adonai. Thou art my Lord. The prayer of faith moves on to the evidence of true faith. Uh, the evidence of true faith. Because in verse, the, towards the end of verse 2, it says something which seems quite strange. It says, thou art my Lord, and, and then we have, my goodness extendeth not to thee. And then, then we, if we carry on reading, because the sentence is not finished, verse 3, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. So my goodness extendeth not to thee. What does that mean? It says, any, any good that I do, any good that I'm enabled to do, God is not helped or profited by it. Which is very contrary to idolatry and false religion. So God is not profited or helped by anything. He is eternally existent. He's the source of life. He's the giver of life. He's the giver of all things that are good. We are the mere recipients of what we might call his providential kindness. And recipients of his grace. That is his undeserved favor. The kindness that a king would show to those who have risen up against him in his own country and have destroyed his lands and have come out after his blood and he's taken them prisoner and he's put them in the dun dungeon and then he shows personal kindness to them. That's grace. Undeserved kindness and love. 
So it's no profit to God. It's no profit to any saints. And, and we'll look. To any saints that are dead. Because it says, but to the saints that are in the earth. They're walking in the earth. We're alive. So no profit to God. No profit to the dead. Once somebody's dead, we can do no practical good for them. Although we may remember someone with affection and, and that we might like to promote their name, they receive none of that personally. They're dead. The body is dead. The question is, where is their soul? Of which there are only two places. For the soul, there is heaven or hell. But these are truths. These are, these are truths that those who have heard that, that promise, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but there are many who do not call upon the name of the Lord, and they will not be saved. So we see there is a place for the saved, place for the unsaved. Did the, did the saved deserve it? No. Do the unsaved deserve it? Yes. Nobody deserves any good from God, and that God would decide to to choose to save some and not to save others is his right. We have the attitude sometimes, you know, well, surely couldn't God save everybody? He, he could, but he, he won't. Because to some he will show something called grace and to others he will show righteous judgment. And he is righteous in all his ways and works and words. And therefore we must learn the fear of the Lord that we might love him aright. That we may come to him and call upon him. Somebody's going to have to give me the time because my watch is incorrect and my phone is at home. Could anybody give me the time? 7.41, thank you. Because I could just carry on and it would be 9 o'clock. I don't know if that was a noise of panic or excitement. Probably panic. Thank you. So it's not profit to God when he says, my goodness extendeth not to thee, and it's certainly not to those who are not living, because we can do them no earthly good, literally. But it's to the saints, but profit to the saints. So firstly, who are the saints? Now, we were to listen to, to, to the Roman Catholics, um, who have expanded upon something that the early church did. The early church knew martyrs. It knew believers who were, who were, who were arrested on sight, uh, maybe, sh maybe not shot on sight, but maybe stabbed on sight, maybe killed. There were various times when that did happen in the early centuries. Uh, we know that, uh, that there, were, though, there were believers who were crucified. Uh, they, were, they were cast to the wild animals in the bestiaria of the... Uh, of the uh, Roman, the Roman games um, in the Roman Empire and elsewhere. And, and so the idea was that when somebody, uh, somebody who was a, a blessing to the congregation or to the local area, and it may have been a teaching elder, it may have been a, a simple saint, a simple believer, so that's what the word we use as a saint, is a believer, that they would then be remembered, they would be thought on, Remember our brother, whatever his name is. And so every year they remembered that the, 
the, the, the, the witness that he had, the goodness that he had, the, the, the walk that he had with the Lord and how he was mistreated by the authorities and yet he would not recant Jesus. He would not deny the gospel. He would not say, release me and I will follow the pagan ways of the emperor. And that would encourage them in the faith and so we had uh, uh, and we're encouraged by the story of martyrs of those, and a martyr means a witness, those who had the witness to God. And yet that was exaggerated over the years, so much so that these, these martyrs were sort of like uh, first-class Christians, the best of Christians. And, and even though they were, they were dead, that the Roman Catholic Church, which itself is only really from 600 AD, establishing itself as a separate system, teaching that you were to call upon these saints... And so, the, you know, the, so that idolatry moved into a completely different realm. No, that's not what we're talking about. And we're not talking about the Roman Catholic way uh, of, of declaring uh, saints. I don't even want to talk about the Roman Catholics. I want to talk about the Bible and what the Bible says. Because the Bible says that we're unholy. We're unholy sinners. But when we do put our trust in God, what does God do? Well, God forgives us of our sins and he makes... And he makes it makes the way that the sacrifice of Jesus for sin is a sacrifice for your sin. And so therefore he can say, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I cast thy sins from you. So far, separate. And you just imagine you're walking on the earth. Let us understand the earth as a globe for simplicity's sake and for scientific sake. But as we're walking, we're never, we're never going to find them. Do you understand that? If as far as the east is as from the west, and I keep on walking to the east, I'm never going to reach the east. Never going to reach it, because the Lord has separated them. They've been paid for. They, the, the blood of Jesus Christ has paid for them. His life for your life, as it were. Or his death means your life. And so then the Lord calls all those that trust in him holy ones. That's what saint means. Holy ones. The sancti in, 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 in Latin, sanctified ones. We get the word saint from the French. Right? Dropping their C's everywhere, drop, dropping letters. We add letters, uh, you drop them. There's a French speaker here. So, sante. Huh? Yeah, sante. So, from sanctus, from holy, in Latin. Hmm? So saint. So somebody who was a saint. From the Latin sanctus. He that is made, made holy, he who has been separated. Um, separated from their sin as well. So that's what saint means here. And he's saying my goodness doesn't reach up to the Lord because that's not what the goodness is intended to on this earth. It's not good deeds towards the Lord, but it's, it's good deeds toward the saints. He's not saying it to everyone. It's not something that not to be good to everyone. But he's saying that my goodness, that the, the works that I'm able to do have an expression to the saints, to the saints in general. So we're not taught here to be denominational. So it's only those who are in our denominational club, only those who are in our congregation, but to the saints, the saints of the earth, all believers. As I said, we are to do good to all men, as Paul teaches in the epistles, especially to the household of faith. And this is what we're being taught here. 
is that we ought to extend our love and our kindness, and not just in a word and not just an emotion, but practical love as well to the saints of the earth. And what are these saints now called? Interestingly, up until this point, we've seen many expressions for believers, and they're called the poor ones, the, the humble ones, the meek of the earth. And then we see something here which is very different, and it doesn't happen often in the Scriptures, and they're also called the excellent. The excellent. But to all the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent. But we know in the Scriptures that not many noble, not many mighty, not many rich are called to true faith. So most of us are nobodies, but not in God's eyes. Because his grace has been at work, because his eternal love has been applied to us, because he has caused us to call upon the name of the Lord, he calls us the excellent ones. Because we are to excel. And we're not to excel in the world's way, in the sense of career, nothing against career, but that's not the excelling that he's speaking of. The excelling in goodness, the excelling in kindness in humility, in help. And to excel in that, we're also taught that we must delight in them. But how, how can you help people if you're so distant from them, if you don't have much contact with them? And, and it's in two ways. Eh? If, you don't look, if you don't see someone in need and then go toward them and, and try to help them, but on the other hand, those that will shut themselves off for whatever reason, often an over emphasis on independence and that's linked with pride oh I don't want to be helped I knew an old lady who was like that she, she needed help but she would refuse any help even, even getting a lift in the car to, to church she would walk or she wouldn't go so we must delight in others we must delight in our fellow believers which to delight in people, and we're all so different. We're from different backgrounds, different social, uh, we're from different neighborhoods, different, 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 whatever, different in so many different ways, and yet the Lord brings us together for a short time or for a longer time, and we're to forbear with one another. We're to love one another. We're to delight in one another. We could say something like this, just delighting is, yeah, isn't it amazing that God saved me and he saved you, and neither has deserved it, and, and now the Lord has gathered us together in one particular flock, and we're to be good to one another, we're to delight in one another, and we're ex we are to love them. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth. And thirdly, having seen the prayer of faith and the evidence of true faith, we could have continued more on that line, but I would like to move on. Thirdly, the contrast of false faith. Because in verse 4 we see, Their sorrows shall be multiplied, that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. So the, the Bible is very clear. There is one true and living God. He is our creator. He created all things. He sustains all things. He says there are no other gods. They are inventions of man. But there is one true and living God. God. Now, in a world that's full of relativism, and even if we think back to the, to, the, to, to, to the ancient world, and the idea that you would believe in only one God was 
in the time of ancient Greece was for the, was for the elite, the, 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 the elite of the philosophers uh, would, would even confess you know, that there, there must only be one God, all these other gods and demigods, that's all mythology, that's, that's all story, but there's only one uh, true God. But at other times, and I think about the Roman Empire, to say that there is only one God and, and then all these other Roman gods are, are fictitious, they, they just wouldn't allow that. In fact, they would call the belief in one God atheism. Because you're not believing in Zeus and Hera and, and uh, or Juno, if you keep it to the Romans, Zeus and, and Juno and all these others. You're not believing in them, therefore you're not believing in the Roman gods. You're denying the Roman gods, you're an atheist, regardless of your Jewish God. But there is only one God. He's the only one who gives us life. He's the only one who sustains us. He's the one who will judge us. He's the one who, who made up, invented, authored gospel. The good news to sinners that he would send his son to die upon the cross and that you were to trust in him. So he says, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. And he's talking about spiritual adultery. We ought to be faithful to the God who created us, and yet we're born into a world where there are all sorts of gods. But he says, no, this is an accursed thing. Sorrow shall be multiplied because they're believing a lie. Uh, they're believing a false comfort. Uh, the religions say, we'll do this ritual, do that ritual, follow this and follow that. And the God in heaven saying, that's got nothing to do with Jesus. That does not have any payment for sin that has no truth in it. It has, it has my handwriting not even on it. There's nothing to do with me. As far as God's concerned, God is not some relativist that says, oh, well, they're trying their best. We might say that, but God doesn't. God sees it for what it is. It's a false gospel. It's a false way of salvation. It's a denial of his way of salvation. It's a denial of the truth, and God is truth. And so people will, 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 can be very zealous and be very, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Determined. They can be very earnest, but dead wrong. But dead wrong. That is the state of play for humanity as we are as a fallen race in our sin and blind to the truth. And yet God says, but we're not blind. He says there's enough in nature to show us the glory of God, the power of God, the glory, the, 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 the order of God. We have natural laws, we have natural beauty, we have natural power that we see around us in the universe and on earth. And he says in his word that that is sufficient that we would understand that there is a God with whom we have to do. So there is spiritual adultery involved in what the Lord says here. There's spiritual abhorrence as well. He says here then, they, their drink offerings of blood will I not offer. So there's abhorrence. There's abhorrence in the myths and in the religious rituals, especially what he's pointing out here. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer. 
And so he's saying these are false sacrifices, let alone any rituals that would involve blood, even the drinking of blood. Yes, there is the offering of blood in the Old Testament as a picture of the offering of blood of Christ. That's all it points to. That's all it, 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 it suggests. That's what it's there for. And to make realize to the Old Testament saint that when they bring a sacrifice, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a healthy one-year-old lamb, let's say. And that's going to cost you money. That's going to take out your flock. That's part of your inheritance. That's part of your wealth. And it's costing you. But it's also costing that lamb. In other words, your sin is so terrible that that lamb is, is, is dying on your behalf. So they're understanding something about the cost of, of, of wealth, understanding something about the cost of the life of that lamb, but they're also understanding this, that lamb is in my place. That the lamb is being slaughtered for my sin. I should be slaughtered for my sin. The wages of sin is death. And so the gospel, it's in all these matters, but what do we have here in, in these false sacrifices of the heathen that he mentions? And we could go into much more detail, but I trust I won't. Just to finish with the third uh, uh, part of verse 4, the, the drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. And there are some that would say, well, you see, you should never, as I just did, mention the names use or Juno, or anything like that. You shouldn't even mention their names. Well, that's clearly not what the Bible is teaching here. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible often speaks about the name of false gods. Baal is a, a, a type of god, a, a generic name for, for a, a Middle Eastern a plethora of gods. The Baalim, the, 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 the many Baals that they had. And other false gods are mentioned, and demigods are mentioned, Castor and Pollux are mentioned in the New Testament. So it's not mentioning their name, we're not, we're not to be a superstitious folk. Oh, he said, said, that, said that name. That, that's not what it means. We're looking, we're looking at the, in the context of false worship, of pagan worship. So we're seeing that uh, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another god, probably eternal sorrows. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. So it is, it is joining in with that false worship. So, well, I, I wouldn't do that. Well, when we could look at this in various ways. We could look at it in a very, in a very uh, within the Christian setting, where you might have a man-centered, charismatic worship. That's not what it's talking about here, but we consider even a Christian application or blasphemies that are to be found in Christian worship. So I would suggest the Mass. The Mass has many blasphemous elements in there. It has taken the Lord's table and, and completely ripped it out of its context and, and made it into something that it wasn't. It's not a memorial feast anymore. And think of New Age rituals. We can think of pagan ceremonies themselves, and that's when we're getting into the heart of what we're considering here is not going into the, into the temple and then, and then singing songs that, that praise well, that which is not there, that which is empty. There's nothing there. That Paul says that very clearly. Is that we know that idols are nothing. You know, if you consider a physical idol, 
We consider the statue, the statue is deaf, blind, dumb, and it can't move. Why would you worship that? So, yeah, well, some people might take that a step further. It says, well, just using that, 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 that statue uh, to worship God. Well, so God says, you're not to worship me by statues. So therefore, you're worshiping another God. But those gods in and of themselves are nothing because they are not God. They do not direct you to God. But Paul then goes on to say, but there is a spiritual danger because he says behind them, well, not physically behind, but behind those systems because they take you away from Christ and from the gospel, make you happy with your self-righteous works, do not give you conviction of sin, that you need to make peace with God, that there's a devil behind them. That's what Paul teaches. And Paul knew very much about the, the polytheistic world that he lived in, in the Roman Empire. And he didn't make many friends either of the world. But true religion and true worship, then, if we take our lesson from this, is to deliver us from anything that's even slightly not of the Scriptures. Because the point we're trying to make when we're understanding all of this is that we're not holy, we're declared holy, declared to be saints. But even then, there's still much sin within our nature. But then compare that to God who is holy, and he's from everlasting to everlasting God. He's always been holy. He's always been good. He's always been righteous. And it is a holy God that tells us how a holy God is to be worshipped. Because we don't know. We don't know and there are a thousand million uh, temples and religions and philosophies all over the world. All saying, we'll figure it out ourselves. And then God says, no you won't. This is how I desire to be worshipped. So the prayer of faith, the evidence of true faith, the contrast of false faith, and then very briefly, I hope, the inheritance by faith, and that's in verse 5 and 6. The inheritance by faith. We see a godly portion, first of all. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. So at the end of the day, and here's a truth for absolutely everybody on the planet, at the end of the day, it is you and God. When everything else has been taken away, and that happens at death, but there can be times in life where everything else has been taken away and you're, you're stuck at the bottom of a mine shaft, you're, you're, in the, you, you, you're somewhere you can't get out from, and, and who is it? It's you and God. It should be like that every morning, you and God. And sometimes the Lord has to bring us into difficult circumstances before we will realize at the end of the day, it's me and God, and I must call upon him. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. He is my cup. That is, he is my blessing. My cup overflows when the Lord is on my side, or better still, when I'm on the Lord's side. All we have is the Lord, and all that we have is to abide in the Lord. He is our portion. And that language we might not completely understand, but what that's referring to is the Old Testament truth when it came to, the, to the, 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 the tribes of Israel entering into the promised land after the 40 years of the wilderness, entering in, 
is that the, all the tribes got a portion. They all got this portion of their land, whether it was Judah down in the south and Simeon somewhere in Judah, and then Benjamin was there, and you're moving up to the north of the land, and they even uh, onto the um, uh, east coast of the Jordan, the lands there given to Manasseh and, and others. As you, you see, there was one tribe that didn't get anything. It was the Levites. The Levites didn't get anything. They didn't get any land. Oh, they got a little, bit of, a little bit of farmland outside of a city. But they didn't, as a tribe, they didn't get their own portion of land. Because the Lord said this, Wherefore Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance. According as the Lord thy God promised him. In other words, to Levi, it was to have that intimate serving of the Lord that was for the Levites, that they would know the Lord, that they would serve him, they would serve him in the tabernacle, and when the temple was built, they would serve him in the, in, in, in the temple. They would do things for the Lord, and that they would, have the, they would have a close relationship with the Lord, and we do see that. We see that at times of great, uh, of great um, apostasy or rebellion in the people of God, that it's the Levites that stand up. And have zeal for the Lord, a good zeal. So when, when David is saying this, and we can say it with him, that, that, that we that believe on the Lord, we, we that say that in thee do I put my trust, that we who are the saints of God, that we can say that we are spiritual Levites. Yeah, we do have a... We have something here. We may have a house. We may, may have a career. We may even have an acreage or a farm. We may have something here. But it is not something that will last forever because our inheritance is not here. It is not here. But we have a godly portion. We have God who is our own inheritance. It's pointing to Christ. He says gratifying places also. Gratifying places. The words that he uses, Psalm 16, the lines are fallen. Yeah, thou maintainest my lot is, is, is with the inheritance of my cup. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. It's an idea of, 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 of the, the plotting out of land, that you get this land and that land. And, uh, okay, it's, it's good land. It, 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 it's not the bad lands. It's, it's not half hanging off into a coulee. It's, it, it's a good bit of farmland, and it's, 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 it's well watered, and it's, it, it's, you know, it, it's, not, it, it's, it's fairly smooth. You can plow it well, and, and, and there's good trees, and it's, it's good for orchards. It's good for fruit, and it, if you're imagining that, you, that you're wanting different land, and there's a good water supply nearby, and it's, it, it's good. That's what the Lord is, is saying, that with the Lord... The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. And what if your pleasant place is not as pleasant as it could be? Well, I think what we understand here is God's providential care at all times and in all places. That we can turn around and say, although I might live, at, I live on the side of a coulee and the house is not particularly good and there's not much land and what land there is is terrible, that we can still say this, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Why? Because God is my inheritance. Not this bit of land, not that house, however beautiful or however much of a shack it is. The Lord is my inheritance. A humble gratitude of wherever and whatever we have from God. Paul in Philippians says, 
Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. We're running over time terribly. A goodly heritage, we finish with this. The inheritance that we have in God is on many levels. This inheritance of the saints, what does it mean? Very brief list of some of those truths in the scriptures. We are the purchased possession of God by the blood of Jesus. We are adopted as the children of the Father. The earnest or the deposit of our inheritance is the indwelling Spirit of God. Our souls have a home in heaven and our future inheritance is in heaven on earth with Christ forever and ever. Our heritage is of all the saints that have gone before us, including the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles. And our lineage is the pure reformed faith of the Scottish and Irish Presbyterians and English Puritans. And our line is a direct one of prayer straight to God. And all of that and, and much more that I didn't touch upon considering the goodly heritage that the Lord has granted us is that we can be sure and steadfast of all of these things. They're not wishful thinking. They're not going to be taken away from us because they're all sealed up in God's own covenant of grace. That we may make bold claims of faith because... God says so. And because God cannot lie because he's not a man, that we may believe him. And his word is yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we may trust him because he is trustworthy. And he offers so many delightful promises to the soul that humbles itself before him and says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank Thee uh, for Thy Word and this portion of the psalm that we've read. We pray, O Lord, that it may please Thee to bless this Word to us, to work faith in our hearts, to grant us, O God, a strength from heaven to believe, to know Thee, to walk with Thee, to call upon Thee. Lord, give us that help. And help us in the time of prayer, we pray thee in Jesus' name. Amen.